Welcome to Under the Bleachers. This is a podcast that explores all things sports, all things queer, and the fabulous intersection where queer and sports meet. This podcast is brought to you by Team DC, the nonprofit association of LGBTQ plus sports and recreation organizations in the Washington, D.C. area. I'm Laura. I'm the vice president of Team DC, and I've played and loved sports my whole life. I've played with Team DC member clubs, the DC Furies Women's Rugby Club, and Rogue Darts. And I'm Gabe. I'm also on the board of Team DC, and I'm a diehard sports fan. I've played with many of the Team DC member clubs, including the DC Gay Flag Football League, Kara Bowling, Stonewall Kickball, Rogue Darts, and the Washington Scandals Rugby Football Club. I'm also a member of the DC Different Drummers, and I do a little bit of drag on the side. We hope you enjoy this week's trip under the bleachers. Welcome, everyone. Gabe and Laura here. It's May 31st, and you're listening to Under the Bleachers. We wish you all a happy Memorial Day. On this podcast, we take turns, and this week, it's Laura's turn to choose our topics. For a discussion of all things queer, she chose Billy Porter's announcement that he is HIV positive. For a discussion of all things sports, we're talking about Simone Biles and how she's a superhuman. And for our discussion at the intersection of sports and queer, we're talking about the new documentary film, Changing the Game. After that, we're going to share our interview with women's basketball coach, Kevin DeMille. First, a quick update on Team DC. Team DC will be celebrating Pride Week, June 1st through 7th. The virtual celebration will include content from Pride Night Out partners, including the Washington Capitals and the Washington Nationals. Team DC's 2021 college scholarship recipients having a conversation with out professional soccer star, Colin Martin, workouts, yoga, and more. Our annual silent auction fundraiser will also take place featuring sports tickets and memorabilia from all of our night out partners. Visit teamdc.org every day during Pride Week to view that day's exciting content and to find a link to the auction. Pride Week will end on June 7th with a live panel discussion, Changing the Game. Join Team DC and the team behind the new documentary film, Changing the Game, for a powerful discussion about living as a transgender athlete. The panel will stream live from 6 to 7 p.m. on Monday, June 7th. The documentary Changing the Game debuts on Hulu June 1st, and we encourage you to watch the film and then sign up to participate in the panel. The panel will be moderated by Shane Diamond, Impact Coordinator for Changing the Game, and panelists include Andrea Yearwood, an activist and one of the student athletes featured in Changing the Game, Maya Reddy, a former professional golfer and activist, Anne Lieberman, Director of Policy and Programs at Athlete Ally, Rodrigo Hang Layton, Deputy Director at National Center for Transgender Equality, Sasha Bouchard, Senior Attorney with Lambda Legal, and Ava Banach, a local baseball coach and the recipient of Team DC's 2021 Horizon Award. Go to teamdc.org or Team DC LGBT on Facebook to find the link to register for the live panel. There will be a Q&A opportunity for registered participants to ask questions of our panelists. Team DC will be celebrating Pride Night Out with the Washington Prodigy on June 5th. Tickets are $10 and can be purchased at WashingtonProdigy.com. Follow Team DC on Facebook at Team DC LGBT and on Instagram and Twitter at Team DC Sports to stay up to date on all the latest news from Team DC. Laura and I will be bringing you new episodes of Under the Bleachers every Monday at underthebleachers.podbean.com and on all your favorite podcast apps, including Apple, Google, Spotify, Stitcher, and iHeartRadio. 
Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast to help us get the word out. And share us with a friend or two if you know people that would be interested in listening. With that, here's Laura with our first topic in this week's trip, Under the Bleachers. First up, our queer topic. This past week, Billy Porter, the out and proud actor who stars as the iconic Pray Tell in the FX series Pose, publicly revealed that he is HIV positive. Porter revealed that in June 2007, he was diagnosed and that he has been living with the secret ever since, having shared his truth with only a few people. Porter said that it was shame and fear that kept him silent all these years. He said he felt shame that had roots in his Pentecostal upbringing and fear of disappointing or bringing shame to his deeply religious mother. And he said he feared marginalization and retaliation in an industry that hasn't always been kind to him. But Porter has flourished in the 14 years since his diagnosis. He got married and is now looking to bring children into his family. He starred in Kinky Boots and won a Tony. He starred in Pose and won an Emmy. He is just an Oscar shy of an EGOT. And Porter says that he was able to say everything he needed to say through his characters, Lola, who found a way to forgive a father who traumatized a young queer child, and pray tell a proud gay man bravely battling HIV in the 90s when there were still no real effective treatments. But still, until now, Porter was not ready to publicly disclose his status. It is 2021 and HIV no longer has to be a death sentence and it certainly should not be a cause for stigmatization. But still so many people live in the shadows feeling shame and keeping secrets. It is time we start speaking up loudly in support of HIV positive folks to let them know they are loved and accepted and that they are deserving of a full and happy life. Our community should be at the forefront of this effort. So please everyone go get tested and know your status, take precautions, and if you do contract HIV, get treatment and take care of yourself. And please do what you can to stop the marginalization of HIV positive people. So Gabe, what was your reaction to Billy Porter's announcement this week? Um, so yeah, it, it was popping up on my Twitter, it was popping up on my Facebook and all over the news that I was reading and um, Honestly, I'm, I was really taken aback by like how honest and kind of raw he was in his announcement, kind of still saying like, hey, I'm, you know, Billy Porter, I've been in the industry forever, people know me, you know, I'm a household name now, finally made it, and now I can share something with everyone, but that can also affect my, you know, my job affect, you know, how people think of me and stuff like that. It's like he's coming out again. Yeah, I, I mean, it was very brave, very, uh, he was very open and he was, yeah, the word you used is raw and I agree that was, that's the right word, you know, it was a very emotional um, story that he told and, you know, it was like I felt what he was saying. Yeah, and it's one of those things where um, it's kind of sad that like, again, it's, it's like coming out all over again where you have to say like, oh, I'm gay, but I'm also HIV positive. Um, and just to see how people react to that, because, yeah, it's still it's kind of sad that it's 2021 and people are still being stigmatized um, for something that's a health related issue. Yeah, um, I mean, people are people are ignorant about certain things and they are still afraid of HIV positive people, which yeah. is not, you know, something that you need to be. HIV is very hard to uh, contract. You're not going to contract HIV through casual contact. Um, and many, many people who live with HIV today are undetectable 
And the science shows us that people who stay undetectable are not able to transmit the virus to other people. Um, so people really need to educate themselves. And, you know, it's one of these things where people feel shame and they shouldn't. Um, so I, I, I hope we start to see movement in this area. I think this is one of the issues that our community has not focused on. And for good reason, I mean, like, they're focusing on black trans lives right now because black trans women are being murdered every day. You know, it's not as if um, the community is ignoring this important issue and just having a party all the time. There's plenty of important issues for us to focus on. Marriage equality was important. The Equality Act is important. But this is an important issue, too, and it disproportionately impacts our community. So I think the queer community really has to start focusing on this and standing up and uh, supporting HIV positive people. Yeah, we need more people like Billy Porter to come out and say, hey, I'm living with this, but also kind of as a reminder for people to, to go get tested, go know your status, um, and don't be afraid of having an HIV test. I know it can be scary at moments. I mean, I've had times where I've gone in for a test and freaked out because I'm like, oh no, what if, you know, what if this yeah. happens? But also think about it like, I mean, okay, it's so like anything. Like, anything. <laughs> I mean, you take a test and even if you know in your head you're going to pass this test, that minute before you open the envelope or click online to see your results, you suddenly get that wave of, oh my God, what if I fail? And it's the same thing with an HIV test. Frankly, you're like, oh my God, what if it is positive? But you know what? The thing is, if it is positive, there are steps you can take and you can live a full life. So, you know, there's power in the knowledge you need yep. to know your status. So definitely um, and take care yeah. of yourself early. The earlier, the better. Make sure you take care of yourself. There's, th there's, you know, new advancements in treatments and things you can do also, you know, for your potential partners and stuff like that. Keep them safe as well. That's right. Go to Mary Center here in DC or to Whitman Walker. They will get you hooked up with all the tests that you need, and they can get you hooked up with PrEP if you're not positive. And if you are positive, they can get you hooked up with the medications that you need. So get out there and get your status. Yes. And don't be, again, don't be an asshole and be nice to people. Come on. We have to say this like every single episode, but just don't be mean. Stop being an asshole. <laughs> Stop being an asshole. <laughs> All right. In sports this week, Simone Biles once again proved that she is superhuman. At the U.S. Classic, Biles became the first woman ever to attempt and land a vault called the Yurchenko Double Pike. If you don't know what this is, don't feel bad. Nobody but Yurchenko knew before Simone did it. But go to YouTube right now and watch her do it because, whoo, I got to tell you, I, the first time I saw it, I, like, my jaw fell open. Um, I had to rewind it and watch it again. The move requires Biles to launch off the vaulting table with a round-off back handspring into two full flips in a pike position. It is dangerous and it is wild. The New York Times this week said that the Yurchenko double pike, quote, is so perilous and challenging that no other woman has attempted it in competition and it is unlikely that any woman in the world is even training to give it a try. Simone Biles is easily the greatest gymnast in the world, and she keeps delivering never-been-done-before moves to prove it. Shockingly, the judges at the U.S. Classic awarded Biles a 6.6 .6 for the vault, similar to her scores for other vaults, 
and added zero additional points on account of the near impossible difficulty of the move. In gymnastics, judges rate gymnasts on a scoring system that takes into account the difficulty of the moves they perform. But the Yurchenko double pike has a low starting score, which most people think intends to either discourage gymnasts from attempting the dangerous move or to keep someone like Simone Biles, who is so clearly so far superior to her competition from running away with the gold or maybe both. In an interview with the New York Times, Biles was asked what she thought of her vault scores, and she said, quote, they're both too low, and they even know it, and then said, but they don't want the field to be too far apart, and that's just something that's on them, that's not on me. So good for Simone Biles not letting them uh, get her down, but she's right. From my perspective, Simone Biles is a a once-in-a-generation athlete, and I want to see what she can do. For my money, I'd rather see her run away with the gold and stun everyone with never-before-seen moves in every event than have her win the gold by a few tenths of a point but be forced to stick to safe routines to do it. Simone Biles should be celebrated for being so much better than everyone else, not punished. And let's not pretend that racism and misogyny don't have something to do with the double standards that look at a black woman athlete like Simone Biles with suspicion, but look at Michael Phelps, who everyone knows has biological advantages that help make him the world's best swimmer as a deserving hero. I wish we could just be celebrating Simone Biles and talking about how freaking awesome she is this week, but that would do a disservice to her. Instead, let's face facts and talk about how awesome she is, but also about how she's being mistreated by World Gymnastics, the IOC, and many sports media outlets. Racism is real, misogyny is real, and both of these sadistic forces are part of sports. They're built into the fabric of every system, and we must not be quiet about these things. So Gabe, did you see Simone Biles uh, perform the Yurchenko double pike? I did. I was uh, watching the U.S. Classics. Uh, was it this past weekend, last week? Yeah. Yeah. Whenever they were on. Um, and it was insane. Like, I mean, how fast does she? I, you can see it when she lands and she like has to take that little hop because it's just like the energy that she's using. Yeah, up and just she, like, she gets insane. so fucking high. It's <laughs> wild. Like, I'm just like, oh, and you know, it's, it, it really, it goes by so fast, but it is awesome to watch. She is in a class on her own. Oh, she's that. Just amazing, and I, um, and it sucks that yeah she got penalized for being too good. Well, that's what they do, right? I mean, it's terrible, and you know, it, it's. It reminded, I say, it reminded me of. Do you remember? I'm probably gonna butcher her name. Um, is it Soraya Bonnelly? She was a French figure skater that was the first one to do in competition. This is like in the '90s. She did a backflip, and oh, the okay. judges were like, "Oh, you can't do that." Yeah, and she was like fine okay she they're like okay you can only do something that you can land if you can land it on one foot so she did a backflip and landed it on one foot and she's like count it and they were like no no yeah i you know it's it's crazy people um throw shade at simone biles all the time like yeah. as if like because because she's like so much 
quote stronger than most girls or like no girls have the you know the muscle tone that's mo- no, you know, one, no one should bullshit. be able to do this right well guess what like she can <laughs> and she does it time after time the, it is um, it's it's honestly incredible what she can do and the fact that world gymnastics does isn't super excited about it you know they'd rather have it be a nail biter finish at the olympics than have this once in a generation talent come out and put on the greatest show that gymnastics has ever seen and it's so fucking short-sighted and it's all because she's a black woman i mean isn't this what you you kind of want you want the sport to progress you this was the goal that people wanted. Uh, yeah, nobody see, was sad that Michael Phelps took home every single gold medal in that fucking Olympics. And it's amazing. That's what but... they wanted to happen. They cheered about it before. They had an entire media campaign around it. Why not do the same thing for Simone Biles? Simone Biles is going to win the world gymna- or the Olympic gymnastics all-around championship by a hundred fucking points because she's that damn good. You better be in front of your TV to watch it. Yeah, like that's what the everyone else step it up. (laughs) That's that's what the advertisements should be, but you know they're not. And uh, I, you know, I I don't want to bring everybody down by always bringing you know people say keep politics out of sports, and I don't think this is politics. This is humanity, but. You know, I don't believe for a second that it's not all about racism and misogyny, the way that she is looked at. Um, Same with Venus Williams, Serena Williams, you know, and it's uh, black women, man, the things they do for all of us and the way we treat them. Tell everyone, like, come on, step it up. Like, you want your sport to evolve. You want people, she's basically proving you that. Oh yeah, I can do whatever. But that that also as as an athlete, you would think be like, okay, that's my goal. I need to get to that level. Let's train harder. Let's keep going, not just say like, oh, it's she's too good. I mean, no one can so, do but here's the thing. It's, Who cares if nobody is ever as good as her? Exactly. Who cares? And you know what? If that's the case, then those of us who are alive right now and get to watch her do gymnastics should be even more thrilled because we're seeing the best gymnasts of all time. Of all time. (laughs) You know, and don't you want to see everything she can do? She's going to retire. Like her career is going to be over soon and we're not going to get to see more moves. She's got so many moves named after her because she's the first person that ever did them. She, I, she, <laughs> uh, it is just, it's really, it's very frustrating. And you know what the thing is? If it was a nail biter, she's going to win the thing anyway. Oh yeah. Right? Like she's Everyone such knows a, that. Everyone she's in the Olympics, such a pro. She's so damn good. Even if she came out, did her safe routine and kept it a close competition because that's apparently what they want. She's still going to win. There's still not that much drama about it. She's still fucking perfect. She can do what she, <laughs> you know, she's not going to, it's not going to come down to that last move where she, there's a tenth of a point separating her and she's not going to nail it. Of course she is. She's Simone Biles. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So enough with the fake drama, world gymnastics. Let's, <laughs> I want I want you to take the reins off of Simone Biles and let's see what she can do. Yes. Well, I'm excited for Tokyo. Let's wish her and Team USA well. Although I wish they would have gotten better uniforms because their opening ceremony uniforms suck. They're, the gymnastics uniforms always suck. I hate them. Well, even like the opening ceremonies. Um, yeah. Yeah, they all suck. For the team. Yeah, no, I know. I mean, they all look like flight attendants anyway, but it's like... <laughs> 
But yes, and on that note, uh, what's going on at the intersection of sports and queer? <laughs> All right, at the intersection of sports and queer, we're talking about the new documentary film, Changing the Game. Changing the Game tells the story of three transgender high school athletes, Mac Beggs, Andrea Yearwood, and Sarah Huckman. In 2017, Mac Beggs found himself in the headlines when he won the Texas Girls 110-pound wrestling championship. The following year, he captured another state title, defeating the same cisgender female in the finals. Mac Beggs told everyone who would listen that he wanted to wrestle with the boys, wrestle against the boys, because he is a boy. But a Texas law would not allow him to wrestle with the boys, and when he had too much success competing against the girls, he became the focus of intense anti-trans backlash. Andrea Yearwood's success as a high school track star in Connecticut also invited scorn from anti-trans activists. And for the last year, she was a defendant in a federal lawsuit filed by the Alliance Defending Freedom. Spoiler, anything with freedom in its name is probably not about freedom. Uh, a federal judge dismissed the lawsuit last month, and today Yearwood is an activist for the rights of transgender athletes. And Sarah Huckman, a transgender athlete from a small town in New Hampshire, she didn't get as much media attention. She wasn't a standout star like Beggs and Yearwood, and yet Huckman had to fight for inclusion. She had to fight for her right to participate on her school's girls track and cross country teams and to use the locker room with her teammates. She ultimately was successful and she credits sports with saving her life. She said, quote, if I didn't have sports to clear my mind, I don't think I would be here today. These are the stories at the heart of director Michael Barnett's documentary, Changing the Game. Changing the Game debuts on Hulu on June 1st. Team DC is excited to be teaming up with the team behind the film to host a panel discussion on Monday, June 7th at 6 p.m. You can register today at teamdc.org or on Team DC's Facebook event page at Team DC LGBT. The panel will be moderated by Shane Diamond, Impact Coordinator for Changing the Game, and panelists will include Andrea Yearwood, an activist and one of the student athletes featured in Changing the Game, Maya Reddy, a former professional golfer and activist, Ann Lieberman, the Director of Policy and Programs at Athlete Ally, Rodrigo Hang-Layton, Deputy Director at National Center for Transgender Equality, Sasha Boucher, a senior attorney with Lambda Legal, and Ava Banach, a local baseball coach and the recipient of Team DC's 2021 Horizon Award, which is awarded to the educator or coach who best supports the LGBT community that year. So Gabe, are you excited for the film and for our upcoming panel? I am actually really excited. Um, it's interesting. Uh, I, I really hadn't heard a lot about this movie until you kind of brought it up and we were talking about it. And um, yeah, I, I remember the, uh, the Mac Beck story and how like big it was in Texas and how it, it kind of make, made a big deal. Um, also side note, uh, Texas kind of, kind of don't celebrate too much, but defeated the transgender sports bill. Uh, it failed the Texas house, but since we were a weird, weird, weird legislature, they can come back in a special session at the end, but if it's done, it's done for two years. So cross your fingers that governor Abbott is not an asshole, but he is and doesn't keep going. But um, yeah, I do remember the uh, the story. And I, I'm glad that they, um, they're making a movie, they made a documentary about what's going on. I mean, it's kind of crazy that it's 
it came out, it was filmed probably, what, 2018, 2019, a couple years ago. Um, but now it's really relevant. Now it's really, this is what almost every single state house is talking about right now. We're talking about yeah. high school kids, you know, well, and transgender athletes. That's right. And people saw it coming, you know. Um, yeah. It, it so, was kind of like, we know this is going to be an issue, but now it's just insane how, you know, before it was two state houses. Now it's what, 48 state houses? That yeah, well, but it, and it started session. in the school districts. It started with harassing these kids at school. And then these kids started having success and getting their names in the paper. So then as, you know, people start to get more recognition, then here comes the backlash. I mean, it's a story as old as time. Um, so the film is coming out at just the right time highlighting some amazing stories about some amazing kids who are not really kids anymore because like you yeah. said the film, <laughs> the film was filmed a couple of years ago i think it debuted at the tribeca film festival in 2019 so i think it was filmed maybe 2017 2018 um, but it was finally picked up by a production company and will be making its debut june 1st on hulu which is super cool I can't wait to watch it, and I really can't wait to meet Andrea and all the other super cool people that we have joining us. I'm so excited. Our, this panel is stacked um, with really amazing people who are at the forefront of these battles and have a lot to say about all the anti-trans legislation that's going on, about the impact that sports can have in our lives, and about these kids just having to fight just to be themselves. It, you know, it's a really powerful topic and we're going to have a great conversation. So everybody should go sign up today. Yeah, I'm, I'm really interested to, to ask them or to see like, okay, you're, you're just a high school kid that wanted to play sports and now your name is on all the headlines and you're all over the place and now you're a huge activist. You know, how, how did you think you were going to be doing that at what age 17, 18, like when you were a kid? Of course not. Nobody, thinks, nobody wants to do that, right? <laughs> nobody wants to have to defend their very existence ever, let alone as a teenager. But like Mac Beggs, you know, he, a lot of people in Mac Beggs' position would have just given up and gone home. Oh, right? yeah. But Mac Definitely. Beggs was not going to be deterred. If they weren't going to allow him to wrestle with the boys as he rightfully should have been allowed, he was going to wrestle with the girls because they weren't going to bully him out of wrestling. And that, and you know, I'm so proud of him for standing up for himself that way. And he took so much abuse because of it, but he, it didn't keep him down. That didn't make him shy away. He went on to win the state championship two years in a row. Yep. And, you know, a lot of people were, saying really nasty things about him and criticizing him about how he would have sucked if he was against the boys and to his credit his response was then let me wrestle against the boys you know i mean it's just it's so ridiculous these men in texas <laughs> they want to have everything every way you know you can't compete against the boys but stay away from the girls too like they would have these kids disappear if they could and it is just disgusting and yeah i'm I, I cannot wait. I this is I am really thrilled to be having this conversation um, on the seventh, and I hope everybody will sign up. But even if you're not available on the seventh to join our panel, go watch this film on Hulu. Um, the trailer is out now, and when you're hearing this, it'll be one day away from debuting on Hulu on June first. 
Yep, it's, it'd be a great way to uh, cap off, or I mean cap off, to start up your Pride Month uh, with a great movie. So, That's right. Yeah, hopefully we get everybody. <laughs> it's coming out just in time for Pride, and we're going to have our panel as the culmination of Team DC's Pride Week, which is going to be awesome. Um, there's going to be a really cool uh, conversation with some players from the Washington Mystics. They're going to be interviewed by a uh, sports journalist from the Washington Blade. We're going to have conversations with the, our, our uh, D.C. professional rugby team about the issues of inclusion. I mean, there's going to be really cool stuff. We have a video from the Washington Nationals, something from the Capitals, and all of these teams have also donated some really cool stuff for the auction. So Pride Week is going to be lit. <laughs> <laughs> so check it out. Go to our website. TDC.org and don't ever say lit y'all um, <laughs> that's what the kids are saying right that's what the kids are saying I mean you know <laughs> everything's relative to me a kid is 30 <laughs> these days so I don't know yes I hope everybody can uh, check out the film check out our panel and make sure you check out our website and learn more about Team DC's Pride Week which is June 1st through the 7th Okay, that's this week's Under the Bleachers Roundup of things queer, things sports, and things at the intersection of sports and queer. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to share our interview with women's college basketball coach, Kevin DeMille. Welcome back to Under the Bleachers. We're joined today by Kevin DeMille. Kevin DeMille has worked in and around women's basketball his entire career. He was the assistant director of basketball administration at the University of Connecticut from 2014 to 2016 and video coordinator for the United States women's national basketball team from 2014 to 2016 during gold medal runs at the 2014 FIBA World Championships and 2016 Olympic Games. Most recently, he served as the assistant women's basketball coach at the George Washington University. Kevin is a proud member of the LGBTQ community and served as a panelist for the Women's Basketball Coaches Association's Summer 2020 panel on creating a more inclusive game. Hey, Kevin, thanks for being here. It's nice to talk to you. Yes, thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm so excited about this and I'm really looking forward to it. Great. Um, so we like to just jump right in. So tell me, did you grow up playing basketball yourself or what was your first introduction to the sport? Yeah, I'm, I'm from a basketball family, so I didn't really have a choice. Um, we, we all were in it. My, my parents were in it. My mother was a coach. My father was a coach. We grew up around the game. And, and most importantly, we grew up around the women's game. Uh, my mom coached high school girls basketball at a pretty elite level. Um, so I was playing from the, you know, I think back now and I was, gosh, I was terrible. Um, but it was because we were around it so much. We were around it so much. I, I had to get good. I mean, I, I did it so often. I had to get good eventually. Um, and I did, and it, you know, it, it's been my longest and truest love and something that I still do now in times of, of stress or frustration, I'll, I'll go and play or just get some shots up on my own. So I grew up playing, but most importantly, watching. And I have my parents to thank for that. My mom is my favorite coach of all time that I've never played for. Okay. She, she is somebody who just always is thinking the game. Even now we, we text during, especially during March Madness, talking about mostly women's games. Um, that's, that's really what our family watches. So growing up and playing with, with you know, in, with the boys, um, it was always weird when, 
my favorite player was Diana Taurasi and everybody else was <laughs> listing off all these NBA guys that they were yeah. watching. But that's, that's what we did in our house. We watched, you know, we watched a lot of men's college basketball, um, but we watched a ton, you know, or as much of, of it was on TV at the time, which wasn't a lot. Um, we watched a ton of women's basketball. And so that's sort of where I got my start in learning to love the game and, and playing it was, was with my family. Very cool. Um, okay, well, it would be cheating to just say your mom. So let me say, Fair. let me ask mom aside. Yeah. Um, while you were a player, did you have any favorite coaches that inspired you? And tell us what about them was so special. Yeah, I think, you know, this is this is another kind of a cheating answer. Um, but it does, it does tell the era of, of, of college basketball, at least, that I grew up watching. Um, both Mike Krzyzewski and Gino Ariema. Um, I was very fortunate to get to work for one of those two for a long time, but um, I think the competitiveness, I think the, just their, their consistent greatness, the way that their teams were always competing to be one of the best teams in the country and they were the most covered by the media. So they were the most easily available to watch. Um, but I loved the fire, you know, by the time I got to work for coach Ariyama, he had mellowed out substantially. Um, but when I was a, a young player watching him coach, there was nothing mellow about him. And I loved his, his passion and his energy. I love that Coach, Coach K, Coach Shesky at Duke could do the same thing. And their players never backed down from that. Their players always responded to it. So for as much as people like to talk about coaches go crazy like that or yell like that, um, that that can be detrimental to the kids. When you watch those two teams specifically, their players always responded. And yep. so that was always inspiring to me is that they knew what to do to get their players to change their behavior. So right. as somebody who, who grew into coaching, that was something I was always watching. And different players need different things, but I think those two especially showed me that you can like hold people to really high standards, especially if that's what they want. If they want to be held to high standards, they're going to do, do whatever you ask of them. That's a, that's a fair statement. I have to say as a girl who grew up in upstate New York, if you're going to call out Mike Krzyzewski, I have to just point out that Jim Beheim is the best men's college basketball coach of all time. Well, uh, <laughs> as, a, as a graduate of the University of Connecticut, I, uh, there's a lot of, of Jim Beheim hate that happens. So I, I totally respect your opinion. At the same time, I respect the other side. All right. All right. <laughs> uh, so how did you get first involved in coaching? Did you, I mean, we kind of knew you, you grew up in the family, but how did you start your career? Yeah, uh, a little bit of, well, sorry, a lot of bit of luck uh, and a little bit of being in the right place at the right time. Um, so like I mentioned, basketball had been a part of my life, has been a part of my life for forever. And I was a student at UConn. I was working with the team. I was a practice player for a little while. I was a manager for a little while. Um, I ended up staying on as a graduate assistant, did a little bit of video coordinator stuff, did a little bit of basketball operations. So I was around the greatest dynasty in the history of college sports for a long time. And so even by accident, you learn something. Um, and being from a basketball family, I was really engaged with the X's and O's and the strategy involved and uh, being a practice player and, and getting to compete on a daily basis was, was really fun. Um, so when I was working with USA basketball, I met my, my now boss, Jen Rosati, um, who is actually a former player at UConn. So it's a, a weird little small world there. Um, but when she took a new job down at GW, she, she was really inclusive and asked if I wanted to come with her. And I did. And I did a lot of the same stuff I was doing at UConn. And we, we had some weird staff changes. Um, 
so she just said like, what do you want to do here? Like, I, I want to hire you as an assistant coach. Do you want to coach basketball? And I had never, until she asked me, I had never really thought about it. I mean, it was like <laughs> the most obvious thing in the world to me. I grew up with coaches. I was around the, the, maybe the best basketball coach of all time. I've been thinking about the game of basketball since I, as far back as I can remember. And until she just straight up asked me to my face, do you want to be a college basketball coach? <laughs> I had never really thought about it. Uh, and so I was like, yeah, totally. Uh, I put, you know, I put my grad school aside. I, I ended up taking four years to finish a two-year program because what I wanted to do was, was coach hoops. And as soon as the, the opportunity was presented to me, it was like the most obvious choice in the world to say yes. And, and now I couldn't imagine doing anything else. So I want to talk about a little bit about um, your role with the national team. Just sure. tell us what you, you know, what you took away, your main takeaway from the, what must've been a really incredible experience with the team yeah. on their way to a gold medal in, in the Olympics. Yeah, there, there is, I'm getting chills right now. thinking about it. Goosebumps. Um, there's really nothing like working with the national team. They, they are the 12 best players in the world. They are the most competitive people I've ever been around. And I think the most impressive thing is how selfless they are, how committed they are to trying to win a gold medal for the USA and how they are, you know, they're, these are WNBA all-stars, former WNBA MVPs, current WNBA MVPs, and they all put their own individual accolades aside to help the team win a championship, which is, you know, every coach's dream, but not every coach has to deal with the 12 best players in the world who all want the ball in, the hand, in their hands. They all want to be taking the, the, the most shots. They all want to be leading in every statistical category. Like that's how they operate with their pro team. And so when you pull those guys together for USA basketball, it becomes really challenging. And, and people think, well, you've got the best players in the world. It should be really easy to win a gold medal. Well, well, dealing with all of that without the cohesion that those players bring to the table every day is really hard. And so just, just being able to, to be around them in training camp. So now we're talking the, the 35 best women's basketball players in the country and, and figuring out a way to say, these are the 12 when all 35 of them are so good. These are the 12 that we trust or, or that we're going to go with to, to help us win the gold medal. Like that part alone is, is really just so impressive to watch. And then when they get together and they don't have a lot of time they don't have a lot of uh, opportunity to play together. They're, they spend all summer competing against each other. And then they get together for four weeks. They go to the Olympics. And the expectation is, the pressure is, you got to win gold. There's mm. no alternative. I mean, I think, the right. United yeah. States can't not win a gold medal in basketball. We I know. <laughs> and so watching them not just, like, not just appreciate, but embrace and love that pressure and that challenge. And we're going to do whatever it takes to do that. That That's one of the coolest things I've ever witnessed in sports. So no, we normally ask athletes when we interview them, you know, what do they learn from their coaches? But you as a coach, what have you learned from, I guess, your students or whoever you're, you know, who you're coaching? Yeah. I mean, the number one thing is patience. Um, they <laughs> are, you know, the, the end of the day, we're, we're trying to accomplish winning basketball games. Like, that's the that's sort of like the bottom line of college sports but there's so much more that goes into our jobs you know, we've got to be you know pseudo parents and pseudo professors and pseudo counselors and pseudo 
everything. We, we've got to be a family away from home. We've got to be academic support. We've got to be basketball support. We've got to just be like checking in to see how they're doing. COVID prevent, presented so many issues when it comes to that. So remembering that these are young kids who are trying to, to figure out not just how good they can be at basketball and, and trying to figure out how to achieve success in the classroom, but also trying to figure out who they are yeah, <laughs> it's, it's such a, it's such a challenging time, and and I'm worried about why aren't you running our plays right? And they're worried about like they haven't seen their family in forever. They have all these things going on in their personal lives. So I think like the number one thing is is patience and grace that I've learned from them, like giving people the benefit of the doubt and and giving people the understanding that I'm here to support you. I'm going to hold you to some high expectations because when I recruited you for three years, that's what you said you wanted. So I'm going to remind you of that all the time. Um, but, but having that understanding that like we're, we're all trying our best and this is really hard to do because it's not just the basketball that, that they're thinking about. We try to help them do that for two hours a day. Like you don't have to worry about school. You don't have to worry about your family or your friends or everything else going on in your life. You can just focus on hoops. But that's a practice in patience that somebody my age and older should have down by now and that these young kids like everything feels like the weight of the world to them and it's it's really important um that, that we we as all all coaches no matter who you're coaching remember that your athletes are they all want to win so we just got to have a, a, a ton more patience and a ton more understanding of all that they're going through meet them where they are and then say okay here's how we're gonna get through it but also get your butt on the line we gotta we gotta fix this you know <laughs> um so i know you've done a fair amount of work on topics like inclusivity and equity. Um, Do you have any advice that you would share for athletes who are struggling with coming out or concerned about being accepted um, if they come out as LGBTQ in the sports world? Yeah. You know, I'll never forget the fear of what it was going to be like on the other side, which is why I stayed in the closet for so long. My advice would be to, to find a support system, no matter what that looks like. And to reach out, if you feel like you don't have one, to reach out to people who could be. Because I would venture to guess that anyone who is in sport or previously in sport, who has come out of the closet, knows what it's like to be terrified of not having a support system and would only be willing to help those who need it. And so I, it sounds a little bit silly, but I've had people who, randomly send me a direct message on Instagram. Hey man, saw that you're out and in coaching. I could never do that. I'm on the men's side. Just wanted to hear your perspective. You know, things like that where it breaks my heart because I was once in that spot. And now here I am years later with that as a distant but painful memory. Um, and, and knowing that that fear is so real and it's so crippling and people are leaving sport because of it. Uh, so my, my advice and my thought would be to try to cultivate a support system. We want to be there for you. We, we, we really do. We just don't know how to find you when you're not trying to be found. And so part of it has got to be that there's got to be an initial jump, which is why, you know, for a long time, I debated whether or not it was important enough for me to come out. Like, who cares? You know, I'm just coaching the team. But, but what I've, I've learned in my time in the, in the business is that just being visible whether I know it or not, whether, you know, whether you, you bring it to my attention or not, has helped people. That people have reached out years later 
it was so cool to see that you were, you know, doing this with your boyfriend or I'm, I'm just, when I see your stuff on social media, it just makes me feel like it's okay. That to me is, is the most meaningful thing in the world. And so while I can't know how everyone's feeling, my advice would be to reach out because chances are somebody wants to help and nobody wants to out you. Everybody wants to help. Yeah, that's good advice. Um, have you, as you've been working with um, college athletes, have you found that um, there's generally a welcoming environment um, with, with the athletes themselves in co women's college basketball? I have. I know that that's not always the case everywhere. And I've heard some horror stories. Um, but I, I will say generally, and I've uh, over the past couple of years, I've started to get a little bit of a better pulse of the climate across the country in women's college basketball. Generally, the women's game is super accepting. I think the WNBA has set a standard that if you're not ready to follow, there's no place for you in our sport. They are the leaders at the top of, of the game and in how they play, but also in how they conduct themselves. And that basketball has always been the pivot. It's been the focal point, but it hasn't always been the only thing. And it hasn't always been the most important thing. The, the way that they've conducted themselves over the course of the last two decades, uh, two and a half decades, actually, the 25th season coming up. Um, but certainly last summer when the world felt so heavy and there was such a struggle to figure out what we do next and how we make this better, the way they took the reins to say, we're here together, we're a totally weird combination of people, but we're going to do something about this. And if you're not on board, then you don't have a spot here sets the tone for, for the rest of us. And so generally there is a much more accepting and inclusive climate in women's basketball. A lot of it depends on the people. I've been lucky that I've worked with people who have been involved at that, that top level. So my boss was one of the, the first players in the WNBA. And so she is so proud to have been an alum of this organization that is creating social change far beyond the reach of basketball. And so we have instilled in our players that sense of responsibility. You may, you know, some of our players, most of our players, most college players, period, aren't good enough to go and play in the WNBA, but all of them have now been a part of this community where there's a responsibility to make things better for other people, whether that's your sisters in basketball and your teammates, or just the people in your communities that you're going to go out and be with for the rest of your lives. So I do think we are very lucky in women's basketball that we've had pioneers from the get-go um, say that this is how we're going to be. And if you don't like that, then kick rocks. Um, and here we are 25 years later. And, you know, there's a lot of people in this country who have a lot of thanks to give for to the WNBA right now, not least of which for getting Reverend Warnock elected in Georgia. So absolutely. No. Yeah. Well, that was my, yeah. that was and, my next question. Uh, so we see it in the, in the WNBA, but how important do you think it is for players and coaches to use their platform to bring up these social justice issues. So important. I, I mean, I can't, I can't overstate how important it is. I think that in talking with, you know, both my friends from college who are now playing professionally and our former players who are, who have left basketball and are just out in the world doing like real people jobs, the, that part never leaves you. And so it's so important for our players to learn that skill when they're in college and they have a platform, you know, we've, we've got former players who are now working, you know, for the federal government who are working for hospitals who are working in, in the banking industry and they are a rarity 
in their own circles, in their own communities, because they've had this knowledge, they've had this opportunity, they've had this realization that change comes when people decide to make it. And so the more that we can help our young people see that you've got a spotlight on you and whatever you say, people are going to listen to. So you might as well say something that's going to help people have a better life or bring about change, the, the better everything's going to be. And so we actually spent the entire season this year highlighting causes for social change. We implemented a bigger than basketball season of action where we took on initiatives, not just Black Lives Matter, uh, but we took on pride initiatives. We took on initiatives for stopping uh, sexual assault on college campuses, mental health awareness. Uh, we, we did a lot of stuff honoring Black History Month and Women's History Month. So we spent some time really diving into issues that were really important to our players because we wanted them to spend some time reflecting on what is important to me beyond who I am as a student and an athlete? And how can I, as a 17, 18, 19 year old kid, start to make change and then grow with that over time? Yeah, that's pretty awesome. Well, Kevin, I want to thank you so much for taking time out of your day to talk to us. This has been really interesting. Before we let you go, I just want to ask, do you have any um, stories about the Nationals team or career highlights that we haven't talked about that you want to share? No, because the most important thing about my career have been the athletes. Um, they are, they mean everything to me. They are the, the wheels that keep me spinning. Um, they're just the, the young women in our game, the young people in our game, the young people in sport are the future. And they've got such a spotlight on them. The most important thing is to continue shining that light on them. That's where my calling is in sport. That's my job is to turn the spotlight around on them. And, and I'm so proud of the things that they're doing. Um, some of them playing, some of them, many of them not, um, but, but all becoming really good people, which is the most powerful thing any coach could ask for. Awesome. awesome. Well, we will definitely keep an eye out for you to see what you're going to be doing next in the world of college women's basketball, or who knows, maybe you're on your way to the WNBA. Um, who knows? <laughs> I'm a mystery. <laughs> yeah. Thanks again, Kevin. We really appreciate it. No, thank you so much. I appreciate the time and, and really, really appreciate reaching out and, and getting an opportunity to do this. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Under the Bleachers. Under the Bleachers is proudly produced by and a product of Team DC. For more information about Team DC, please visit www.teamdc.org. We want to give credit to Ralph Elston for the design of our logo. Also, our music is provided by DC's Different Drummers Marching Band and was composed by Travis Gettinger. You can always find Under the Bleachers at underthebleachers.podbean.com and on all major podcast apps, including Apple, Google, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and Stitcher. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast and share us with a friend who might enjoy listening. Under the Bleachers is hosted by Team DC board members Laura Frere and Gabriel Hernandez. All views and opinions expressed are solely those of the host and participants of Under the Bleachers and do not express the views of Team DC.